Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. Amazing story for you today. I'm speaking with Stephanie Schaefer. Now, Stephanie may have been a part of a news story that you heard about back in 2018. Back in 2018, she went to the Bahamas with her family on a you know a getaway. Every year, her and her family went somewhere. That year, they decided to splurge, take a trip to the Bahamas. That particular day in June, they decided they were going to go um, to Exuma Island. They were going to go see the pigs that uh, the swim, the swimming pigs that uh, all kinds of uh, people post about on on Instagram. I, I'm sure you could get on there now and and see these swimming pigs. But uh, they decided to to board a, a boat off to Exuma Island, and three minutes into the boat ride, the boat exploded, and. The aftermath of that is is horrific. We learn about how the boat had never been inspected, about how there was all kinds of issues with it, and those issues all just exacerbated the situation and made uh, made the boat explode. And because of that, Stephanie lost both of her her legs, uh, became partially paralyzed. Her mother broke several bones and then had to go through a lot of uh, physical therapy because of that. Another person on the boat lost a, a leg and uh, and one person unfortunately perished. So this is just, it's a crazy story. It's a story about how we have to really realize that, you know, other countries don't necessarily always have the same safety standards as we do. Uh, so uh, you just you just have to be careful. Stephanie's going to talk about the experience, about the explosion, and and just the panic of that. Trying to get her to the hospital in a country that was was foreign to her, getting uh, put into a coma for a month, waking up, the rehabilitation that she underwent in in Florida and then in uh, in Massachusetts. You know she she lost both of her legs. She had um, a, a spinal cord injury, a lot of other injuries. She, you know, one time in this conversation talks about how she thinks she broke almost every bone she's got. So just a, a extreme recovery. We're going to talk about the physical aspects of recovery. We're going to talk about the mental aspects of recovery too. She's got so many powerful things to say about, uh, about recovery and about what she learned from this experience and how she learned to, you know, be comfortable in her own skin, something that she wasn't before this injury, before, she, you know, she used to just want to kind of blend in with everyone else. And the moment that that wasn't going to be possible anymore, she realized I've got to be comfortable with who I am. And I think that's a, a really powerful message. Stephanie has so many uh, incredible things to teach us today, kind of a rip from the headlines type of thing. Back in, in 2018, I think a lot of people saw this news story. Uh, I'm honored to be able to speak with Stephanie about um, the experience. She wrote a book on the experience. We're going to talk a lot about that. Dives a lot deeper into it. We kind of just touched the, the surfaces. Um, so I, I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. It's, it's a really powerful one. So here is Stephanie Schaefer. I'm here today with Stephanie Schaefer. Ms. Schaefer, how are you? I'm good. How are you? 
I'm good. I'm good. Hardest question of the night. Just introduce yourself. My name is Stephanie. I am 27 years old, living in Southern California, but, um, you know, born and raised in Vermont. So that is me. That is you. Yeah. And we're going to kind of unpack a lot of the details, but I think that the best thing to do to start out with is talk about, you know, June of, of 2018, um, yeah. something, something quite major happened with you. We're going to kind of talk about, you know, a, a lot of the aftermath, but let's talk about exactly what happened, uh, that June day. Yeah. So June of 2018 is when my life completely changed. Um, not in a way that I think anyone would really expect. It's not a story that starts a way that I think a lot of people think it's going to go the way that it does. But um, it was summer. We always try to go on like one, you know, family vacation to spend some time together. And we wanted like a big one that that year. So we were kind of all brainstorming as a family. And we decided to go with a group of our family friends to the island of Ixuma in Bahamas. So... We flew out that June. Um, we went to Exuma. We spent about three days there. It was like, you know, exactly what you picture and imagine the first few days. We were just, you know, kayaking, snorkeling, lounging on the beach. So it was like a dream vacation to start. And then the reason we had chosen Exuma was because we had found the advertisements of Swimming Pig Island, which is their like most popular attraction. It's all mm -hmm. over Instagram these days. Yeah. So we um, booked a tour. We had actually considered a few different tour companies because we were aware of the fact that we were outside of the United States and we were trying to be cautious and careful and all of those things. And we um, went out on what was supposed to be a half day tour. And three minutes into it, we were, you know, going really fast and the water and the boat went up into the air, hit the water and then it exploded directly beneath the seat that I had chosen. Um, I mean, that's how it starts. <laughs> and <laughs> that is, it gets crazy from there. It's it certainly does. The 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 two things, you know, that I when when I first read your story, that you know, is scary to think about is one, I mean, I'm a huge traveler. I've been on boats in all kinds of countries, Costa Rica, some, some interesting places that I feel like people need to, to do a little bit more of a, of a, a deep dive into these things. Cause I think that's kind of part of your story that, you know, the safety regulations, a lot of places are just not the same as they are here or, you know, some other more modernized countries. So that's, uh, that's huge, which kind of leads me to wonder, do they know exactly what what happened? Was it just not a was it just a faulty a faulty engine or, or what happened exactly? Do you know? Um, like you said, you know, you assume because so many people go to these places for tourism, you know, they operate on tourism. That's what these countries are known for. Um, so we think of them as these dream destinations, and we don't understand that sometimes there's just like a lot that we don't know. And so the boat, when it was inspected, there was so little left of it that they couldn't even find the exact source. But what they did find was that there was just many, many faults. The boat had never been inspected, never been registered, never been insured. So the <laughs> trifecta right there, um, there was faulty wiring. There was parts that were used improperly. It, um, I remember them saying that basically all of the mistakes made had made it the perfect environment for what exactly what had happened. Um, 
it's why there was nothing left of it was because it was just so damaged that it was it was just ready to just go up in flames basically yeah and i'm surprised this type of thing doesn't doesn't happen more just because again in in my travels and i've just gotten lucky because the story i always like to tell people is that you know we're so used to you know different zip lining here and the the safety behind that i zip line one time in in costa rica they just gave me like these gloves with like a hard thing on the top and you're just supposed to grab the zip line yourself. And they said, grab from the back, grab from the front, no more fingers. That's what they told me. So, yeah, I mean, that just shows you just how different the, uh, the safety is in, in a lot of different places. And, you know, your story is a, is a, a very impactful one because it was, you know, a, a time where that safety and, and being inspected would have been, uh, would have would have helped a lot of people for sure because i know with with you okay it happened right under your seat i know once you got to the hospital with with you were, you were in a coma was this a medically induced coma do you remember any of the accident or were you out from out from the initial explosion right so the crazy part is that i did not lose consciousness um mm. in the explosion um we have no idea how um i don't remember any like visual memories I can remember how I was feeling in the moment so I remember like sheer panic I remember you know darkness I was trapped under debris I remember you know I remember knowing at that moment that I was dying (laughs) um but my family stood around me and you know they were bringing me back to shore and all of that and they refused to let me close my eyes every time I started to fall asleep they were like yelling at me or like give me water and, and they were like you cannot fall asleep because they knew if I closed my eyes, I, I wasn't going to wake up again. So talking about limited resources, we got to shore and there was no ambulance. Um, so thankfully my family was no, not injured to the extent where they couldn't help me. So they found a parked pickup truck. Um, they didn't know whose it was and they just took all the belongings out of it and they just put me in the back and they found the man and they're like, you're driving us to the hospital right now. We got to the hospital and the doors were locked and there were no doctors inside. And at this point, you know, they're still keeping me awake, but I'm like really starting to fade at this point. And then I was eventually when I was when I was transferred to NASA, the bigger hospital where they were like could actually treat me there. That is when I arrived and was somehow still conscious. But that is when they started doing the I think it's called like the Glasgow coma scale. And I was going into a coma. So um, I did slip into it on my own and then it was medically induced to give me a chance. I guess I stayed in a coma for one month. Well, just a, a, a moment of levity, because that is a very in, intense, intense ordeal. Where were the pigs at in all of this? Were they swimming <laughs> around? Where, where were they at? Where were they, where we, were they never, thinking? we never made it. I like, <laughs> I remember joking and being like, you know, recovering early on and being like, like at this point they owe me like a pig. Like they should just be like mailing me a pig or something because we never even got to see them. So yeah, we didn't, thankfully we didn't make it too far out in the water or that would have been even worse, but yeah. yeah, That's, that's that. I I wouldn't, I didn't think about that. Yeah. If you would have been too far out there, that would have been, uh, that would have been even more catastrophic for sure. So you were in, you were in a coma for, for a month. Um, I know your, your book kind of details, you know, first waking up and, and, you know, the nurse 
seeing you first wake up, all that kind of stuff. On your end, how much of that do you remember? What was it like waking up after a month of being in a coma and kind of dealing with a kind of a new reality? Yeah, it's like a mix between reality and being awake, but having no idea what's happening. I was hallucinating a lot, which is, you know, really crazy. Um, like very clear hallucinations. It's so, so nuts to think about, but the medications were of course, you know, still so strong. Um, my first memory, like real memory was my family and doctors coming in to tell me I had lost my legs. So that was a, you know, a hard thing to wake up to. And then it gets, you know, blurry, but the the first few weeks were pretty intense. You know, it was a lot of bad news and it was, I was very sick and it was just struggling to really figure out what was going on because everything was still so kind of like dreamlike because they can't just take you off the medications quickly. It's like a slow process. So I think a lot of people don't know that. They assume you're just like awake and like aware. And it was like trying to be aware, but also like very confused (laughs) all the time. Oh, I can, I can only imagine. I want to get to kind of the beginning of your recovery, but we do have to kind of talk about to your comfort level, what were the injuries that you sustained? A lot. (laughs) Um, So at first, the only big one that we knew of was that I had lost both of my legs at the time. They were below the knee, but they were both very, very short. Um, We didn't know the extent of a lot of the rest of it. Um, I was in kidney failure at the time, so I was receiving dialysis. I had broken pretty much every bone it felt like in my body. I'd broken both of my arms, both of my wrists, um, multiple ribs, my pelvis, and both of my legs. You know, it was, wasn't was really a part of me that was left undamaged. And then, you know, with time and with more testing and all of that, we did realize that I had also um, suffered a spinal cord injury. So I was paralyzed. I'm a paraplegic T12. And I had a traumatic brain injury. Um, that required uh, speech therapy to treat. Yeah. And that, that was something that I, I saw you talk about in a different interview that wouldn't be something that I'd even think about because I've talked to people with different disabilities, whether it was from birth or whether it was from a, a you know traumatic injury. And it was a little hard for them at first to realize that you did have that paralysis because you know, obviously you, you'd also had become a, an amputee. So it was a little harder to, to know what you had lost given that you didn't have certain parts. So that was something I would never even thought about. So how, yeah. I guess, how did they, how did they, how did they figure that, that out? Does it affect other parts that would, wouldn't function your, your walking, I guess? Yeah. So we found out like at first we assumed, you know, all of the weakness was because I had been in a coma for four weeks and hadn't been able to move. I also, at that point, I had had major abdominal surgery to stop internal bleeding. So there wasn't even a way to sit me upright yet. So there was no way in the beginning to to tell. I was so medicated. There was really, everything was so reduced and dulled for me at that time that there was just no way to tell. It was when I was transferred to my um, second hospital in Massachusetts that they did, you know, it was like the pin test where they had me close my eyes and they would touch me lightly on my legs with a pin until I was supposed to tell them when I could feel it and when I couldn't. And the other reason we couldn't tell that I was paralyzed because I still had some sensation in some spots. But then when we realized that I couldn't feel the majority of what was left in my legs um, and that my you know muscles weren't responding, that's when we were able to tell that there was 
no sensation and no movement. And that was how I was diagnosed with the spinal cord injury. Um, and then, you know, things continued that all of a sudden it was very clear that I had a spinal cord injury, but that was the first initial test that revealed it. So you said your second hospital, how long were you, were you in Nassau dealing with this and how, when did, when did you get moved back to the States? I was in Nassau for a very short amount of time because um, my family kind of looked around and they were like, we have to get her home if she has a chance, which was, you know, a risky choice to make because the doctors and surgeons there in the Bahamas, half of them were saying, if, you know, if she has a chance of surviving, she has to get to the United States. And the other half was saying she doesn't have a chance of surviving the flight. Mm. So it was like this choice. And my dad had flown out and he hadn't been in the accident. So he had a clear, you know, perspective. And so he said, no, she's coming home. So I was only in Nassau for like a few days. And then I was in Florida for about a month and a half, I believe, maybe. Yeah. And then I was flown to Massachusetts. I got you. So in this recovery, maybe the early parts, because, you know, you, you went from in, enjoying this day, enjoying this vacation to this happening and then going to the hospital, learning that you had lost your legs. What was your initial thoughts? Was it thank God I'm alive or was it, holy crap, this freaking sucks. What, I mean, what, what was your real feelings at that point? Yeah. I mean, at first there was definitely denial. Um, you know, I was a young girl, like losing your legs. That's, you know, the worst news you could ever imagine. <laughs> and I, um, didn't believe it at first. I had to be told multiple times. And then I remember, reading the article about what had happened to me and seeing the pictures and having it click and that I had lost, had lost my legs. And I, I remember, you know, I, I was, I cried a lot at the beginning, but then I became hopeful very quickly. Um, it was just, you know, I had been an athlete my whole life. I grew up, you know, with competition. It, it was a very big part of, you know, my dad's and my relationship because he had always been my coach. We, um, so when he was in my room, we're like, we're talking about how I'm going to beat it. You know, um, they're looking at prosthetics for me. They're giving me hope. The doctors are giving me hope. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to walk again. It was in my mind that I was going to walk again and like somehow hide my prosthetics and nobody was ever going to know, you know, it was going to be like my little secret. Um, so I was super hopeful at first. It was when I then got the continued bad news that it was way too much for me at that point. And that is when it definitely sunk <laughs> a little bit in the mental health area. Um, I think my family for being around, I think um, my nurses and doctors and everybody for really allowing me to be sad. Um, but I think, you know, I think I handled it better than I ever thought that I was going to for sure. Yeah. And, and you talked about this in another interview too, that I just thought was fascinating where you kind of talked about how it's almost helped you put a better perspective on, I guess you're being comfortable in your own, own skin that you were an athlete before you never were super confident in your own body. And then when this happened, you you had to kind of realize that, Hey, you're always going to, you're always going to be a little bit different. So I, I might as well get comfortable. I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. If you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it was a lesson that was incredibly painful to learn, but that I, to this day, I'm so incredibly grateful to have learned it. Um, my whole life, 
before my injuries, I just wanted to blend in. I didn't want to stand out. You know, I wanted to be good at sports and I never wanted to be like the star. I wanted to be, you know, pretty, but I never wanted to be someone that was, you know, stared at. I really did everything to be the same as everyone else around me. And then this happened. I realized I could do everything. I could do everything. And I was never going to be the same as people around me. And I had to finally like learn to be confident in who I was and be confident in my differences and just embrace who I was now where I was going to be miserable for the rest of my life. And like, you know, none of us are meant to be the same. We're all meant to stand out in our own ways. And I think being able to learn to accept that has made me like so much more confident than I ever would have been before. I feel like ever since my injuries, it's kind of been the first time I've ever really felt, you know, like beautiful, confident, all those things that I should have felt, you know, before, but I am thankful to at least feel them now. Absolutely. I think that's, that's powerful. I wonder too, what, what was... I guess in the beginning and then still ongoing. I mean, I've talked to people, you know, th- that have sustained injuries 20 years ago and there's still a recovery aspect to it. So I wonder from the beginning to now, what is, what does your recovery look like? Yeah, I still do um, training. You know, I'm still working on my walking gait every week. Um, I do as much as I can to stay active, stay strong. Um, a lot of it now is really about taking care of my health more than it is, um, being like, oh, I need to walk again. <laughs> um, I have realized, you know, that image I had in my head wasn't super realistic. I can walk, but with a walker or crutches. So I, you know, I want to be able to keep being able to do that and be strong enough to be independent in my wheelchair. So now I have this balance of both, which I think has been what has allowed me to move on um, and accept, you know, that I am still working at recovery, but it's not all consuming anymore. Like it was at the beginning. Um, yeah. So now I still train here at a paralysis recovery center in Southern California. I do that um, two to three times a week and I you know, make sure I'm keeping my bones strong, trying to minimize as many like side effects that come from paralysis as I possibly can. Yeah. And I want you to, you know, we, we focused on, on your story here. I think that, you know, it, it was a tour group. I want you to kind of tell us what happened with everyone else. There was 10 passengers. There was two crew members. I believe one person did, did lose their life, but what happened with the, with the rest of the passengers? Yes. So there was a couple, um, a husband and wife there, and then there was our group. So we made up eight of us and then there was the other two. Um, in my group, second to me, my mom suffered the most injuries. I think she broke like six or seven bones, mm. which was crazy because we weren't even able to, you know, focus on that. Where if that had happened in any other situation, it would have been like the biggest deal. Mm-hmm. But um, she just, you know, had her both of her legs and boots and she um had a lot of similar injuries to me, just much less severe. So both of our wrists, both of our legs, um, both of our ribs, you know. Um, But yeah, she was, you know, one floor away from me when I was in the ICU. She was in the trauma unit and the patients there are not supposed to leave, but the nurses would get her out of bed and dress every single day because at that point they didn't know if I was going to make it and they would bring her down to come just sit with me. Um, and she's doing much, much better now, but for her it also took years of, you know, physical therapy and things like that. And my group, 
There was also my little sister who thankfully had no physical injuries, but she was the one right next to me in the, you know, the truck going to the hospital. And so she remembers the most. Um, so she has had to deal with a lot of PTSD. I mean, we all have, but, but hers is more severe. Same with, you know, my stepdad. And then our friends um, were injured, which thankfully, and then um, the other group, the two, the couple that was there who we have gotten to know, um, Tyran, he lost one leg. He's an amazing guy. He's doing really well now. And his wife was the one that unfortunately, very, very sadly lost her life. Um, you know, I, I feel very guilty sometimes complaining about my injuries because there was a life lost that day. So it, it is something to try, you know, I try to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're talking about this because you wrote a book, uh, kind of detailing, detailing everything. What made you decide that you wanted to write a book and, and kind of share your story? I mean, right away, everybody was saying, because it's such a crazy story. Everybody was saying to me, this needs to be a movie. This needs to be a book. Um, so it was always in my, in my head. But then when I got home from the hospital after five months in a hospital, um, full of a lot of feelings, um, I felt like it was the best thing for me to do to kind of heal, um, move on. I had a lot of anger. I had, you know, it, it shouldn't have happened. And that was all I was kind of able to focus on at first. And so I was able to write the chapters and then just kind of like grieve while I wrote them and then be like, okay, that chapter is done. Like I literally have to move past this one now. So it was, it was definitely therapy for me. And, um, just a huge task that I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to make something of the story too. I think I didn't want it to just be something that happened to me. I figured if this crazy thing happened to me, I, I should make something out of it. So that was, you know, motivation to finish. I know that you've mentioned before that the, one of the toughest parts of, of writing the book was, you know, that the legal aspect of things. So what exactly happened there? I know the outcome didn't happen the way that you'd you'd hoped it would. Yeah, that was the most stressful part of the whole book was trying to figure out how to explain the legal process without getting sued <laughs> too. Um it which would have been insane considering what had happened to us over there. But um yeah, I was healing from not only my injuries, but my surgeries continued as soon as I left the hospital. So I was having back-to-back -back surgery while still healing from the initial injuries. And in the midst of all that, I'm trying to fight this legal battle that nobody over there wanted to even acknowledge. I believe that because it was such a huge story that was covered by international and national news that to them over there was best to kind of just sweep it under the rug. They, it was easier to just pretend like it had never happened and to be at home picturing, you know, that everybody over there is doing that. It was the most heartbreaking part of my whole entire story, you know, more than losing my legs. I was grieving that nobody would even acknowledge it. So, you know, that took, that took the heart. That was the hardest part to get over. I think um, I actually went back to the Bahamas um, not even that long ago um, for a trial, had to testify, all those things. And of course, you know, nothing 
nothing came from it. But um, I think going back was maybe a little bit helpful for me to realize that there were people that did care. (laughs) So um, I I think it was that feeling of just being ignored that was what I wanted to incorporate in the book because I wanted to make people aware of that, um, of the fight that I was fighting on top of everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you know, you wanted to be heard when it comes to the the wrongdoings of of the tour company, but I wonder what was it like dealing with kind of the, you know, the, the media attention when, when all this happened, maybe you didn't even know it was happening, but you, you already talked about how, you know, it, it got picked up internationally, this horrific accident, you're in the hospital, you're, you're trying to recover and you've got, you know, a lot of people knowing about it. What was, what was that like? I mean, initially I didn't know anything about it. Um, but it, I know that it was very hard on my family because it was hard to decide how to approach it. Was it, you know, keep the news away, which was an option, or was it bring as much attention as you can? And everybody had different opinions. And because at the very beginning, I wasn't awake to ask, it was, you know, there was tension, <laughs> I would say, on trying to decide, you know, who gets to make that decision for me. Um, so that caused a lot of you know, a lot of stress at the the very beginning. And then the first time I really became aware of it was when I had to go to Massachusetts and they asked me to make a code word for myself at the hospital so that nobody could come and visit me without knowing the word um, because they didn't want press just showing up, which was crazy to me that it was that extreme. But then I think there was a lot of good sides to it too, because at first it was just my family doing the interviews. And I remember finally getting to the point where I was like, why am I not being asked to speak for myself? I was like, I'm, you know, I'm good. I want to, I want to tell my story. And so when I did my first ever interview, I think that was like also a huge step in moving on because it was speaking about it and kind of taking control of it in the little ways that I could. So I do think there's a lot of good that came from the media attention. It just also had a little bit of stress too. Oh, I, I can, I can only imagine that. And I, I want to get back to you telling your own story and, and, and the book. Well, you know, we already talked about maybe the hardest parts to write about the legal aspects. And I know writing about your, your sister's experiences was a little bit difficult too, but when it comes to the actual writing aspect, what was the hardest part there? I always like to ask that because, you know, there's interesting things have happened to a lot of people, and I've talked to a lot of them, but doesn't mean that they can write a book that anybody wants to read. So you've, you've accomplished that. So I wonder, what was the hardest part of, of writing all of it? You know, at the beginning, I was very, like you said, nervous that people were going to actually want to read it. Like it wasn't just like, let me write this paragraph about what happened to me. It was literally like, how do I make each individual sentence sound the best that it possibly can? Um, not just to me, but to everybody who's going to read it. So I started with a local editor and author that I had met in Vermont. And the kind of plan, not a plan, it was just an idea, was that I was going to, you know, have her help me with the writing. But I wrote the first one to two chapters. And then we both just kind of looked at each other. And she was like, I'm not helping you because you don't need it. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I don't want you to help me at this point. Like, I want you to help me with you know, guidance, but I didn't want any of the writing to not be my own. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, I took the whole thing over and I just did it by myself. I would say the hardest part was deciding what people would want to read and what people wouldn't, because to me, I just wanted to write it all. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give every little detail and share every part of every day, but it was like, nobody's going to care about that. Like I care about that part, <laughs> but yeah. readers aren't going to care about that part. So I would say, yeah, keeping it concise was the hardest part. Yeah, no, I've, I, I've heard that so many times. I've probably interviewed 20 people that have written a memoir and almost everyone says that same thing. The hardest part is not what to put in the book. The hardest part is what to leave out of the book. Yes. So I, uh, yeah. And, and I mean, how did, how did you make that determination? Because obviously all this is very traumatic and, and very important to you. I mean, it's your own life. So how did you decide mm, people don't really care about that? People don't want to hear about that part. I mean, I literally wrote it all at first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the book was probably at least twice as long as it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just read it over and like the whole book, like over and over and over again when I was finished and editing. And at first I was just looking at the major chapters as a whole and just saying like, is this chapter needed? And then when I had the chapters narrowed down, I went through like paragraph by paragraph, like, okay, is this paragraph as needed? And then once I had, you know, that I literally went sentence by sentence, cutting out extra words, trying to like be like, cause I wanted to be as straight to the point as I could. I think, um, I honestly think it's like Nicholas Sparks or someone really famous like that. And I remember like a long time ago reading this quote of his that says to me, like, I try to leave out the parts that people skim over because like, you know, everybody skims some when they read. And so I've, I felt like a part was like a little bit duller or like a part that wasn't necessary to make the point. Then I would just highlight it and then remove it from the the file. I think I had like seven drafts before I got it down to what it, to what it is now. Yeah. And I know in the book too, that you, you did something a lot of people don't do in memoirs and that is write certain parts from other perspectives. Why was that important to you? Yeah. I think people have picked up on that. So the beginning, it had to be like that because I needed to tell the beginning story, but I was unconscious for the first, first four weeks and I needed to be able to tell you know, the day of the accident and needed to be able to tell, I wanted to tell the kind of, you know, behind the scenes of what was going on while I was waking up and while I was sedated and all of that. So it was important to get those details in, but have them not be from my perspective so that, you know, they were true. <laughs> so I interviewed my family a lot. Um, I interviewed my family friends that were with us and we would just sit down and have conversations and um, I would write, literally take notes while they were talking to me. And then I would write it to include those details. I also felt like because we were in that accident as a family, that it was just, it it was my story, but I also wanted to include a lot of the main people in it, which was my family. Um, I wanted to include, you know, how traumatizing that must've been for them as well. And then I wanted to, you know, I included people like my surgeons that became such a big part of my life because when you're living in a hospital, they they become family. And so I think it just was easiest at times to not have it be just from my perspective. Yeah. What's your, you know, you talked about writing the book and how it was therapeutic because you would write about this certain instance in a chapter and then you'd be like, you know, that's that's written, that's done. I've got to kind of move on from it. 
but that's easier said than done as well. So I wonder what's your relationship with, with the book and, and, you know, the experience now, is it something that, you know, you can, you can kind of look at now as, as, you know, kind of out of body, or is it something that still is, you know, relatively traumatizing? I think that's a good question. I think it is kind of out of body for me. Um, I think reading it almost makes it seem like it happened to someone else. Mm. Um, But also I think it's since the very beginning of waking up, there's been like this like want on mine that I want to remember as much as I possibly can, because I learned so much about myself and I, about life in general, you know, about my family, about everything that I didn't want to forget the pain that I had gone through because that was when I felt like I learned the most. And I didn't want to like take life for granted again. If I forgot all of that pain and I was just, you know, healed and, you know, back to kind of how I was pre-injury where you kind of take days for granted. So I, I, I wanted to remember the pain and all of it as much as I can so I, I love now that it is in words where if I'm ever, if I want to ever read a chapter as a, you know, an actual refresher <laughs> that I can, um, and once again, put things back in perspective. I mean, your, your family was such a big part of the the process and even, you know, parts of their story as well. So this isn't as, uh, I guess, pertinent as it would be in, in other people. But what, uh, I mean, what's your family's feelings on, on the book? Cause it's, I mean, it's a traumatic experience for them too. How do, how, what's their relationship with the book? They're all very, very proud of me for writing it. I would say is the first thing that I think of. Um, I would also think my sister is the one that can't read it yet. Um, and she, you know, has tried, but she, she's just like, it's way too hard for her. So my mom has read it multiple times and, you know, she'll cry the whole book. <laughs> I think, I don't know. I think it's similar to me that they're glad to have it in writing and have made something out of what happened to us. But I think to varying degrees, it is hard for each of them. I think my dad and my sister have it the hardest with the book. And you talked to, you talked about earlier too, learning kind of the the new reality and and de- grappling with all that and and dealing with the the mental health aspect you know this is several years later again to your comfort level i mean what what's been that journey how 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 has the mental health journey happened i mean i feel like that's it's a huge thing to to come to terms with and and make sure that uh, you're in a you're in a good place day in and day out yeah at the beginning, it was tough. I think for a long time, I was doing um, a lot of therapy. Um, I remember my first sessions of outpatient therapy because it is mandated in hospitals when I finally went back outside of the hospital. And I was trying to like be a human again. It felt like um, I would go into those sessions and I would literally just cry for the whole entire hour that I had therapy. wouldn't even speak. And I would just, and then I would be like, okay, like, because I didn't want to, you know, feel my emotions at home, I think at the beginning, because I wanted everybody to see me as moving on and being okay. Because if I wasn't okay, nobody else was going to be okay. So I would literally just go and cry in therapy and then kind of pull it together after. And then I got to where I would talk about all the things. And I learned a lot of lessons, I think, for how to navigate life again. Because I remember saying to my therapist once that like, I just don't know how to like 
live now, you know, like here I am, no legs in a, in a wheelchair. Um, having, I was living on my own now I'm living back with my family. Like, so I got, I was given tips like, okay, take it like really small steps at a time, you know? And I started gaining back small, small skills and small abilities that way, like learning to drive again and like all those things. And then I just continued with the therapy, even when I was feeling okay, just because it felt like it was helping me maintain being okay. And now I'm at the point where I haven't gone for a few years and I'm, you know, living on my own. I've moved out. I, I, it doesn't cross my mind very often what has happened to me, which is crazy. I think I took a long time to become comfortable with who I am now and what I look like now and all those things. But um, yeah, now besides an occasional moment where it still hits me like, wow, like this is my life, you know, like I'll be doing something in my wheelchair or I'll look down and see my legs and it'll hit me. We're like, you know, I never could have imagined that this is who I would be. And it hits me because it's normal now. Like that is now the strangeness of it is that this has become my normal. So it, it still comes from time to time, but um, I would say that I'm in a very good space now, but it definitely took a few years. Yeah, that's all powerful. I'm really, really happy to hear hear all of it for sure. And I want you now, just in wrapping up the book, um, you know, learning somebody's interesting story, and that's that's certainly what it is, is is a great reason to read a book. But what outside of that, what what do you hope people gain from the book? I guess to take into their own life. I think some of the big things that came through in the book that I didn't even really plan on. Um, one of them, I think, is really directed toward young women the most, more than anyone else, even though it does relate to everyone, which is just, it's so easy to acknowledge everything that we, you know, don't have. It's easy to see everything that we wish was different. And it's so much harder for some reason to look at ourselves and our lives and appreciate all that we do have going for us. It's it, for some reason that gets overlooked and we focus on the things that we wish we had. So I think I hope that's a lesson that comes through is to really appreciate the little things and to appreciate your differences and all, all of that. Yeah. I think those are great lessons to learn. So let's, Let's now just get to to your current life. We've had to reschedule several times. We're both busy people. You've got a lot going on. One time you you messaged that sorry you couldn't respond because you were on set. So what do you got going on these days? What what's what's up with Stephanie in twenty twenty three? Yeah, that day I was actually um, at a modeling job and I had like just a quick second to text you back. So I am living in Southern California now. I've been here for a few months. Um, what I do for work now, which has been great because it lets me still do my physical therapy and, you know, take care of myself and feel healthy as I do a lot of modeling. I do things like this to promote my book. And then I um, also do a lot of social media work. So all very different paths than I expected, but it has made for a fun and pretty rewarding life. I love it. And what, I mean, this is, this is a, a tough question. What, what, what do you, what do you hope that the future holds? Where, where are we, if we're talking in, in five years, what, what's Stephanie doing? I always say that the dream is to be able to live half the time here in California and half the time back at home in Vermont. So if there is any goal that I'm working towards, it is definitely that. Um, 
I love New England. I love having my family around there. And then I also love it here in California. So that is the big picture goal that if I can figure out how to make that work in five years, that would be the dream come true. Yeah. I, uh, you, you literally moved almost as far away as possible from your family. And, and given that, you know, so much happened and you moved back, back with them and, you know, they were, I'm sure your caretaker for at least a little while, what made you decide to move so far away and how did they feel about that? I'm sure that was, that was a tough, tough move for them. Well, during my recovery, I had come out here to California to come to this physical therapy paralysis recovery center. I was given a scholarship to come train here because when it's focused on paralysis recovery, you know, of course, insurance doesn't cover that. So I found this amazing center out here and I started training there and I made a lot of friends and um, just love it out here. And at first I was just flying back and forth to train and to visit and to do all those things. And then I just decided I was ready for a change and I made the move. My family was, I think, a combination of very excited and very sad, <laughs> as expected. But, yeah, I love it. Well, in wrapping things up, how can people how can people find the book? Um, it's available on Amazon. Um, just search for "Without Any Warning" by Stephanie Schaefer. What did you say? What was the website? Amazon. It's on Amazon. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Everyone's books on Amazon. Is that? I know people does. don't normally like to promote it on Amazon. Is that the best place to get it? Yeah, it's the best place to get it, I would say, because it, you know, ships anywhere and everywhere. And, you know, I don't, then it just ordered directly. So, yeah, I love it. So outside of the book, you said that you do social media things. How how can people connect with you as a whole? Um, My Instagram, I share bits of my life every week, multiple times a week. Um, It's just my full name is my username. Um, And then I have, you know, all the other things, Facebook, all of that. But um, Instagram is where you will find, find all of my links to all my platforms and the book link and all of that. I got you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So that was Stephanie Schaefer. Really, really honored to speak with her. Learned so much. I, uh, I, I just think her story is so powerful on my end of things. What an amazing podcast host where I don't even say the name of the book one time. Luckily she said it once, but The book is called, without any warning, Casualties of a Caribbean Vacation. Urge you to check that out. She goes into a lot more depth about the experience you learned from the perspective of her family, from the perspective of her surgeons. I think it's a powerful uh, message. She spent so much time editing it, making sure that every sentence she says was uh, was there for a reason and there was not a lot of you know, fluff there. So I really think that you, uh, you're going to gain a lot from, from checking out her book. I may have not said it, but the links will be in the show notes to find without any warning. Um, urge you to check out the book, urge you to check out her social media. She works a lot in that world now in social media and in modeling. So go support her in any way that she can. The links to the book will be there. Her, the links to her social media will be there. Like I said, urge you to urge you to give uh, any support you can to uh, to Stephanie and, and all her future endeavors. If this is your first time listening to this podcast. Appreciate you being here. If you haven't already, go give a five star review on Apple and on Spotify. Leave a written review on Apple. Even more amazing, go follow along on Instagram. Not enough podcast. 
Facebook, not enough of Jackson Up, JacksonUp.com, all kinds of places to uh, to follow along. We've had so many amazing guests, just like Stephanie in the past. We've got so many amazing guests in the future as well. Uh, excited to uh, to welcome them and excited to have you uh, check those out too. So thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, listeners, for being here. We'll see you next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.